Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's good to be with you, Ashley. Man, this week in particular is always busy every year because it's like the confluence of Thanksgiving, Giving Tuesday, first Sunday of Advent. It's not always the first Sunday. Those don't always come so close together, and it's thrown me off. I, they often do, though. <laughs> um, the, and it always sneaks up on me every year. But this year, in particular, was super busy. It was a big week for America Magazine. I don't know what you could be referring to. <laughs> there are actually, like, multiple things, right? So first, we started off on Monday with a groundbreaking interview with Pope Francis. Five of our colleagues went over to Rome the Tuesday before Thanksgiving mm-hmm. uh, and sat down with the Pope for two hours. And this was the first time that Pope Francis has done uh, an extended interview with editors of an American magazine, uh, American magazine. And it was in America. Yeah, it was. Pr- so that was really exciting. Obviously, we got to, um, you know, once the interview was done, help get it ready for production and, you know, hit send on Monday morning, first thing, right after a long Thanksgiving weekend. And I was still in my, I was still comatose from all my turkey. Um, but it's, it, it was awesome to just like be, have a you know secondhand part in rolling that interview out and so we knew for our podcast we definitely needed to get a first-hand account of what the interview was like with Pope Francis yes so this week we are talking to our friend and colleague Carrie Weber who was one of the five America editors and staff members there uh, about one her just experience of the whole thing what it was like to meet Pope Francis how she prepared what surprised her but also she had the chance to uh, asked two questions and she didn't hold back. She she had some some pointed ones. I know. I always laugh when people say that like America Magazine can't like ask hard questions because we're somehow part of the institutional church. And I just will point them to this. There are lots of things I could point them to. But Carrie went in and asked the Pope um, about why U.S. Catholics don't trust the U.S. bishops, um, which is, you know, we have that data from a survey that we ran. Um, and also like what he would say to women who feel called to the ordained priesthood in the Catholic Church. So pretty pretty big, heavy questions. That was just two of the topics that they they touched on, and that's what we focus on with Carrie. Um, but really exciting to break down the Pope's answer and what Carrie thought about them. Yes, and also this week we're going to talk about what's going on between China and the Vatican. This week there's been a bit of a tussle over the agreement about appointing bishops in that country. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Ashley and I love those aha moments that come along with learning when, you know, a topic finally makes sense or you learn a cool new fact, um, which is what uh, just happened when I was watching Wondram's new exclusive course, Searching for the Historical Jesus. Now, the first time I went to the Holy Land, I w- this was happening to me like every single day, multiple times a day, right? You're, you're walking where Jesus walked and even just something as simple as the first time I saw the Sea of Galilee, I was like, oh, it's, it's like a lake. It's not like an ocean. And, I, you know, I can see across to the other side. And so it really, like, brings the scale of Jesus's public ministry to life. Now, I know not everyone can go to the Holy Land, and that's why I think people are going to love this brand new exclusive course from Wondrium called Searching for the Historical Jesus. Yes, with Wondrium, we get to learn about whatever we want, whenever we want. There's unlimited access to thousands of hours of audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more. And you can watch or listen completely ad-free on any of your devices. And every Wondrium topic is presented by amazing teachers who are actual experts in their fields. That's right. And you're going to find your next aha moment by signing up for Wondrium. We know you're going to love this. And right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners 50% off your first three months. That's half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. That's a pretty good deal. Now, you need to sign up today through our special URL to get this offer, though. So go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. 
Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story this week, Zach? Yeah, so China was been making headlines in the secular news right now. So you might have missed uh, some of the updates in the Catholic world that have happened over the last couple of weeks. Right. So last week, the Vatican issued a unusually harsh statement about China after a bishop was installed in that country in a diocese that is not recognized by the Holy See. Um, And the Vatican said this installation violated the spirit of a secret agreement between the Holy See uh, and China that was first signed in 2018 and was most recently renewed this October. Yeah, it's um, a lot of this is like reading tea leaves because, again, we don't actually know what was in the agreement between the Vatican and China. We just know that it had it touched on a process of uh, appointing bishops in the country that would be you know, agreeable to both sides. This agreement's been critiqued a lot by lots of people from all sides, um, one for its lack of transparency. And also some people feel that the Vatican is going too far by even entering into any kind of negotiations with China. And so to look at this individual case, this and this is really the first time the Vatican is, you know, this is a gentle pushback, I would say, but this is a pretty striking statement to even come out and criticize Chinese public officials at all was was telling. So this is Bishop John Peng Weizhou of the Yujiang, who uh, is now an auxiliary bishop of Jiangxi, which is, as you said, a diocese the Holy See doesn't recognize. And this is part of the reason why things are so messy in China, because after you know, China and the Vatican broke diplomatic relations in the 50s, two separate ways of like understanding how the country is divided up have taken place. And First organization that is as organized and bureaucratic as the Catholic Church, that, that presents a lot of big problems. And so while Bishop John Pung was ordained a bishop in 2014 by Pope Francis uh, for a different diocese that the Vatican does recognize, now he's been moved to this one that they do not. Yes. And this comes after he spent six months in jail. <laughs> um, so, you know, you got to think about the context of of what he's going through and what options are available to him as a bishop. The Holy See noted that the appointment of this bishop to the unrecognized diocese was preceded by, quote, a long and heavy pressure from local authorities. The Holy See hopes that similar episodes will not be repeated. And even this gentle pushback was seen by China as something worthy of response. And they came back actually with something that seemed to my mind a little conciliatory. I thought so too. Um, You know, they said that they were Uh, willing to expand the, quote, friendly consensus that the Vatican and China have achieved over the nomination of bishops. So it's hard to know exactly what some of these interior conversations are about, but it's anytime public statements like this are made, they're kind of scrutinized. But uh, we actually were able to ask Pope Francis about this in our America interview because um, our colleague uh, Gerard O'Connell, who's been following this case and and several related ones, kind of said, you know, people really criticized you for your willingness to dialogue with China, but the Pope kind of defended his approach so far. Yeah, he said, quote, dialogue is the way of the best diplomacy with China. I have opted for the way of dialogue. It is slow. It has its failures. It has its successes, but I cannot find another way. And then he reminds us, quote, there are Christians there. They have to be cared for so that they may be good Chinese and good Christians. Um, So he, as in much of his ministry, he's he's looking at the people there and, and seeing how he can be the best pastor to them. And that might not always mean making statements about human rights abuses or how churches are being um, cracked down on in China. Yeah. And, you know, I think a thing a lot of people forget is that the Vatican doesn't actually have a lot of cards to play here, right? Uh, China could at any point decide, eh, we're good. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Pope, but we're going to just pick all the bishops now and they're going to be people that you really might not enjoy or might not even like know anything about Catholicism, right? That could that could be a thing. And the fact of the matter is that there are somewhere around 12 million Catholics on the ground in China that, as Pope Francis says, uh, need pastoral care for. And if there's not a method of choosing their bishops and installing their bishops and administering the sacraments in, a, in an organized way that's consistent with church teaching, then that they, they're the ones that are ultimately hurt. And I think a lot of times we lose sight of those people on the ground in these conversations who, frankly, don't pay attention to the back and forth statements or, or critiques between high-level officials or commentators, right? These are, these are people just like you and me that just want to go to Mass on Sunday and receive Jesus in the Eucharist. 
Yeah. And I don't want to de-emphasize how, you know, how awful the treatment of minorities, including Christians, is in China. Just this week, a cardinal in, in China was was convicted uh, for his role in supporting protests for democracy in Hong Kong. So it's not it's not that we're trying to minimize the abuses there. I would not want to be in Pope Francis's shoes dealing with this geopolitical and religious um, tightrope. Yeah. And I guess I guess obviously we're putting spin on this now. Right. These are our opinions in yeah. our own, you know, way of looking at that. But I mean, this is something I've been paying attention to for a while. This is sort of a beat of mine. Um, And I I will say, if you are interested in learning more about this, uh, definitely check out the Pope's comments in the interview. Um, I also, uh, with America, produced a documentary uh, five years ago that's a a little dated, but it gives a lot of the historical context um, of what, you know, all these different parties are bringing to the table in in these negotiations and dialogues. And so we'll link to those in our show notes. But for now, I think the least you can do is pray for Christians in China. And China was not the only difficult geopolitical situation that the Pope commented on uh, in his interview with America. The one that really made headlines were his his comments about the war in Ukraine. You know, similarly, he gets criticism for not being more explicit about his condemnation of Russia and Vladimir Putin as the aggressors in this war. So if you want to hear how Pope Francis responds to those criticisms, you can listen to this week's episode of Inside the Vatican, where our colleagues Colleen Dully and Gerard O'Connell break down that news. And now stick around for our conversation with Carrie Weber. Joining us from Springfield, Massachusetts, is Carrie Weber. Carrie is an executive editor for America and the author of a new article that describes her interview with Pope Francis. Welcome to Jesuitical, Carrie. Thank you very much. I am always delighted to speak with both of you. First question is, how did my gelato recommendations uh, work in Rome? <laughs> oh, good. So I went to the one, you recommended four. One yes. of them. You were there for them, three days? <laughs> I was there. No, I was there for like maybe like 36 hours essentially of like livable time. Um, I got in one. It was not the one that was in your top 10. The th- three were in your top 10. One was not. So no, we this is just the one. honorable mention one, right? This is just old bridge. The honorable okay. mention one was delicious. So it did make me want to go to the top 10 ones, but they were very far away and we were very tired. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you were at least able to get one in uh, in your short time in Rome. Uh, this is a really exciting thing to unpack because um, we slacked a little bit about it, but I'm really excited to sit down with you and talk about what it was like to uh, spend a like significant amount of quality time with Pope Francis. I guess maybe we should start with uh, what was it like trying to prepare for something like this where you know you're going to get like an extended sit down with the figure as important as, you know, the vicar of Christ. <laughs> so I would say uh, it felt very surreal at first, like almost like it was not a real thing that we were preparing for. <laughs> and then it became uh, very much about the details, right, about what we're doing to prepare for the trip, the travel arrangements, what our questions will be for Pope Francis, what um we thought our priorities were in trying to ask him about various topics. Um, and then, you know, the logistics of the interview itself and where it was and how we get there and the meeting times. And then sort of like shortly before, maybe the night before it became about, oh my gosh, like I need to also feel this, right? I didn't actually experience this on a spiritual level, on a personal level uh, as well. And you got some advice from your kids before you left for Rome, right? What what were they most interested in hearing from the Pope? And why did, <laughs> why did you want their input? <laughs> uh, I was, I, my kids tend to have uh, interesting input to me anyway. Most parents think that. <laughs> most other people don't. <laughs> but uh, I would say, I was just curious to see what they thought of it. Like they're aware Pope Francis exists, but... Uh, I think they think it's just like normal that I went to see him. Like they see pictures of him at church or whatever. And they're like, yeah, well, that's he's yeah, probably acceptable. That'll, that'll ground you. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, my six-year-old wanted to know what Pope Francis's favorite animal was. And my four-year-old wanted him to know that she thought play was important. That is actually profoundly great advice. I feel like for someone with a job as important as Pope Francis. I, she is... 
like a little mystic I swear (laughs) she's she just comes up with these like prayers and songs about God and that just are bizarre but also like really profound and you you did get a chance to actually pass on this message to the Pope yes so I did ask Pope Francis's favorite animal this was after the interview this was after the official interview so this was off the record or can you tell us what he said (laughs) I mean we didn't agree to any kind of off the record statement um it was it seemed like sort of low stakes enough that I I don't think he'd mind me sharing his reply uh you know this was after we were just kind of having pleasantries as we were packing up uh and I my kids had drawn him pictures and so I gave him the pictures and my son's picture was of various animals and the wild Kratz PBS kids logo and uh I said what uh my son was wondering what your favorite animal is uh, and he kind of looked like no one has ever asked me this question before. <laughs> and like, I think that there might be a reason. Right. Um, and he's, and he kind of shrugged and was like, no, no, like, like, I don't have a favorite animal. Um, and then he said, like, I am a, essentially, I am a, a kind of combination of all the animals. And it was sort of like an allusion to him in a way. And then an allusion to, I don't know. Is he invoking St. St. Francis? He was a lover of Yeah, animals. it seemed to be all the like... came to him. <laughs> yeah, there was this element of like, yeah, let me say all of them. Maybe I need to be diplomatic so that the headline is not like, Pope Francis likes whales more than sharks. You know, like, maybe he was like worried that his animal choice would cause controversy. I don't know. Like, if he doesn't say sheep or something. And so he just kind of gave his reply. And I uh, was sort of taken aback by it and thought it was pretty random and funny. Now, uh, listeners might be surprised that we, we you did that after the interview with Pope Francis, but we wanted to not bury the lead here on this podcast. We wanted to get that out of the way first. Um, but transitioning into you got the chance to ask the Pope uh, two questions, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe let's just go through those um, and start sure. with the first one, which was uh, about the trustworthiness of the U.S. bishops. Uh, and mm-hmm. you, you started that with some context about a survey that um, America conducted. Could you uh, give our listeners some context about that? Yeah. So in 2021, we did an interview with American Catholics and gave people a list of various kind of forms of Catholic leadership and basically and asked them which they trusted most in terms of offering guidance on faith and morals. And at the top of that list, the most trustworthy, according to the survey, were women religious. And at the bottom of the list was the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And now we made the distinction in the survey of, you know, individual bishops as well. And the people who sort of, I imagine, had a relationship with an individual bishop had a stronger trust in that individual human Uh, rather than the conference. But I asked Pope Francis how he thought the bishop's conference might be able to kind of regain the trust of some American Catholics. Um, And yeah. What did he say? So essentially, he said, it's good that we're talking about the bishops, but that he felt that focusing on the conference was kind of misleading because the important thing is actually that relationship between the bishop and the person. Yeah, he has a, he he says Jesus did not create bishops conferences. Jesus created bishops, it, which is true. But we do. I, I feel like so many of our converse, conversations focus on the bishops as a single entity, and it sounds like Pope Francis is pushing back against that. Yeah, and I I, I kind of tried to allude to that distinction in giving the the two different statistics in in the question because I I do agree with him, but I I think that the challenge in the United States is that a lot of people don't know their bishops. And a lot of people do hear what the conference as an organization says through the news and through various statements. Um, And so I think there are two relationships there. And I think one should be given priority for sure. The relationship between the bishop as an individual and the people of God in the pews is the most crucial, I think, in some ways toward healing any kind of lack of trust between the people and the conference. Uh, Because I think the more that people can see the bishops as also people, right, as as a group of people sometimes, but as individuals 
also striving to build the kingdom of God, the better off we're all going to be. I do think the conference, as Francis alludes to, becomes sort of like this anonymous governing body that is hard to relate to on a pastoral level. And so people think of it almost as like just like a producer of statements rather than a collection of individuals. And I don't think it's useful in that capacity. It's most useful when it's a way to help the bishops organize as to how they can be better pastors to the people on the ground and how they can build those relationships. And I think that's essentially what Francis was saying. Yeah, I think that's something I've learned in doing this podcast and that we've gotten a chance to talk to a few bishops now. And every single time I, I'm just like delighted and we have a good a good time chatting and it really like personalizes a lot of them for me. But I they all seem like super busy. And so I recognize that like even within their own diocese, not everyone gets a chance to sit and talk with them for an hour. Um, so I imagine that's got to be a really tough line to walk if, if if you're trying to do that. And, you know, that primary relationship that Francis is talking about between the bishop and his people. But I think you're right. There is something interesting about how we relate to the bishop's conference. I'm wondering if putting your like media literacy or media critical hat on, like, do you think that maybe we focus too much um, in the Catholic press just solely on what bishops conferences put statements on or not on? I certainly felt that way after talking to Francis, for sure. I felt like he was saying, maybe don't give as much as much oxygen to that conversation. Maybe focus on the work of a particular bishop doing good work with his people. And maybe that should be the story. And that should be the statement, right? Their lives should be the statement. Um, and that would be more powerful than any kind of press release. Wondering if being with Pope Francis and maybe relating to him as as a pastor and a bishop at the Bishop of Rome, uh, if you got any insights about like how that what that actually looks like. Yeah. I mean, the major things that I felt when I was with Pope Francis were that he was listening and that he was present and that he didn't give us a sense, despite everything he has to do, that he had anything else to do. Right. It was really nice to feel heard and to feel responded to right to that he's he looked at you when he's responding to you he looks at you while you're listening to the translation right so we were doing the interview in sort of a spanish and english translation and as our translator was speaking to me in english i could see him like looking at me to see how I was processing things, right? It, he was very present and very open. And I think he was very vulnerable himself. And I think it felt very freeing to be with him in that capacity. Maybe moving on to the the next question you asked him, I thought, I thought you set it up really well. So maybe could you do that for our listeners? This is on the question of uh, women who feel called to ordination to the priesthood. Yeah. So I said to him that there are many ways that women can serve in our church. And I said that I thought he had done a nice job of putting women into um, positions at the Vatican where they could serve well. And that um, still there are many women who feel called to serve uh, in the ordained priesthood and that their inability to do so pains them. Uh, and if you were to meet someone who felt that way, uh, what would he say to them? I'll, I'll let you describe how, how you thought his answer came out. But it seemed to me you were asking for a pastoral answer, and he came back more with a theological answer. Um, so could you maybe could you describe kind of what you heard in response to response to that question? So I found his response interesting because it was one of the longest responses that he gave. Like he talked for a while on this topic, and given that you know in church teaching, it's fairly cut and dry. <laughs> he could have said something very short about this, right? But yeah, he responded talking about the Petrine model of the church, the Marian model of the church, and then the administrative roles that women might have. And he argued that our insufficient understanding of the Marian role of uh, women in the church contributed to, I guess, kind of confusion over, over this topic and possibly pain for people. But as you're saying, Ashley, I thought that he didn't really answer the question that I asked. He was thoughtful about what he was saying, but it didn't get to the heart of the question, which was about the person. It it was sort of, the implication was, 
that the person therefore must not understand the church teaching rather than the person was pained by the church teaching. And so I wanted him to address that pain rather than the sort of theology or the intellectual aspects of it or the logistics of it. And I don't want to over sensationalize things, but it did feel kind of like striking to have like a woman in the Vatican asking the Pope a question about women priests that that felt to me like a pretty like the fact that it could even be asked yeah yeah i mean because a lot of times there have been attempts in the church to just basically like shut down this conversation entirely um was that weighing on you at all when you were like thinking about asking this question or whether or not this was like an appropriate thing to bring up in conversation with the pope i think that because it's a real pastoral concern of people in the church that it's appropriate to bring up, right? Because um, if people are in the church and they are in pain, then he should care and we should all care. And it doesn't mean that everybody is sort of, you know, in the right about everything that pains them about the church, right? In terms of a particular side of a church teaching or not, but it all suffering is real. Is something that this, this one wise priest said to me once like it you know it's if you're suffering you're suffering right mm-hmm. and so he should care if people feel like they're suffering in the church even if it's a small group of people even if it's a group of people that many people disagree with it's it's his job to care it's our job to care right we should we should be conscious of that and so i i i had hoped that he would address it from that more pastoral angle, as you say. And do you think that the women who you described in your question, who feel called to the priesthood, would have been satisfied by his answer? No, because I think that they know about the Petrine model of the church, and they know about the Marian model of the church, and they know the administrative roles, and they they feel differently. Um, and so I I think that they would be looking for something that a addresses that that personal aspect of it yeah what strikes me is uh, the contrast between um how he has responded in some circumstances to sexual abuse survivors um he tells this really moving story that i hadn't heard before about when he went to ireland um and met with a group of survivors of clerical sex abuse and you know there's a lot of hurt and and anger in in that group and and his response is you know I have have to give a homily tomorrow like why don't you help me write it which I I didn't I had not heard that at the time um which I just it that was just a a stroke of pastoral genius and shows that he was listening and was paying attention to the to the suffering um and responding in a way that I, I imagine would be extremely meaningful to have have your voice heard as a survivor in that way I don't want to compare those two kinds of suffering per se, but I do think that it is an example of the way in which he can be very pastoral, right? So I don't want this to be a critique of like Pope Francis is not pastoral. He he is. And I think that is why in this particular question, when his answer is less so, it's harder to hear. Because I think that when he he does it well, he does it really well. And I think there could have been something there that would have been potentially helpful or healing to, to women who are in that position. And I, I don't think they got it from that, that answer. Could you name maybe one other thing that like either intrigued you the most or surprised you the most from the rest of the interview? Uh, One thing that I thought was interesting was that when Father Matt Malone asked him basically, are you a socialist? Are you a communist? (laughs) He kind of leaned into that and was like, look, if people call me a communist because I'm following the Beatitudes and I'm um, following Matthew 25, then maybe Jesus was a communist too. (laughs) It's like, it's not my fault if the communists co-opted church teaching. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then he's like, well, not everything. And we're all like, yeah, not everything. (laughs) There's some things they seem to have left behind. <laughs> but yeah, it was interesting to see the way in which he sort of leaned into being closer to Jesus and away from earthly political labels that are created for the sake of Tempest in a teapot or whatever controversy you want to see on Twitter, right? Like he's like, I don't care what you want to call me. I want to be like Christ. And that's what we should all try to do. 
Mm. And how about uh, style? What kind of intrigued you the most or surprised you the most? One thing that I appreciated was that he was very vulnerable in a sense in that he came in with his walker and his cane and his little cane had like a little crucifix on the on it like it was just like a regular metal cane with like rubber feet but like with a cute little silver <laughs> crucifix on it it, sold and... it, at Wal- it was sold at walgreens <laughs> from the vatican <laughs> yeah maybe maybe they're very common in rome i don't know there's a lot of <laughs> elderly stuff with crosses and, yeah. on it there um but he uh you know he could and he came in without any fanfare right he came into the room without any fanfare he used his walker he came over he greeted he greeted us at one point he wanted to get up and get some books and someone was like oh let's let us help you and he like waved people off like i can get it just because i have a walker doesn't mean i need your help you know like (laughs) and was very he could he could have set it up so that when we arrived he was in a chair right like that he was seated that we came to him and that he didn't have to show any kind of weakness and he didn't he was just himself and i found that very good and refreshing and helpful there's some b-roll that we published at america uh, and the pope just kind of like comes through a door like with his walker <laughs> like there's no regalia no fanfare <laughs> felt very no, simple like, literally i had to tap matt in the arm and be like matt he's here he's here <laughs> like, oh around. my god <laughs> like we were like it's happening this is this is happening right now i uh, i pointed this out to my wife um also from that B-roll, I noticed that the Pope and I share something in common, which is that we love to fidget with our, our rings. <laughs> Mine is a wedding ring and his is, you know, ring of the fisherman. Uh, and I was delighted to see that when he's just sitting, he's just pulling it on and off his finger the whole time. I was just absolutely. You're basically the same person. Yeah, yeah, the same. All right, Carrie, I have to ask you about about the picture. <laughs> it is Pope Francis laughing. It is Carrie laughing. I assume that you, you said this is when you were, um, when he answered the question about the animals. There's a photograph. And yeah, it, <laughs> I had just asked him about his favorite animal and he gave his weird answer. And I just found it really funny. And I, I don't have like a, a subtle laugh. <laughs> I guess we could say. We, we have that in common, Carrie. <laughs> I laughed with like my whole body, right? So I like laughed and like my body went forward and my head blew back and the photographer was there and captured like several aspects of this and um, then sent us those photos. Yeah. Are, are we allowed to do a caption contest with Jesuitical listeners? <laughs> no, do not do that. <laughs> Deal. No, no, no. I mean, I, yeah, it's interesting. It it went out with the article that I had. Um, and to be honest, it makes me feel like a little vulnerable because it it's actually like me in that moment. It's very yeah. real. And some people on Twitter comments are not very nice about it. And so... It's like, it feels like it cuts kind of deep because they're mm. like this very real moment that you, uh, that like meant a lot to you is like a joke on the internet to them. Yeah. And it feels, uh, uh, sorry, well, not to right. be a downer. We're people sorry. On the internet. We're sorry. <laughs> we the, people, the, the people, <laughs> no, no, the people in like that come to it and see that authenticity and respond to the joy have been very kind. Because I think that's what it is. I mean, it's an authentic, joyful moment. I I think that too. Um, <laughs> I want to end maybe on the note. Uh, you described the scene where you're, you're eating gelato um, that I recommended. I'll just point out um, yeah, again. Um, you're eating gelato in St. Peter's Square and you're thinking about what you want the interview to be. Um, you wrote that, I hope that some part of the next day's conversation will help to build our church. Uh, now that the interview's up and the world's reading it, uh, what do you think? I think we have more blocks to work with. What we build next is sort of up to whether or not, you know, people see moments that are authentic as moments of joy or moments of a chance to attack each other, right? Or moments where this is a chance for dialogue and to look at each other, to be open and to listen the way Francis did or to hear what we want to hear, right? I think we have these chances every day. Listening to the Pope in an interview is not the only way to build the church. So that's a good thing, right? Like we have the chance to to build each other up, to build our church up every day. This is a unique way to do it. It's a unique experience for me anyway, and I'm grateful for it. And I hope that it does bring 
more, um, more listening, more dialogue, listening to what France is saying, listening to each other, um, and ultimately directing us all back to try to just be more like Christ. All right. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing the the behind the scenes story of your interview with Pope Francis. We do have one final question for you that you probably can see coming. Uh, if <laughs> I you hope could, so. <laughs> if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Okay, so this is going, I was thinking a lot about this and it's going to sound um, calculated, but it is not. <laughs> It, but you it, were thinking about said, it. You were thinking about it a lot. Well, I, calcula- <laughs> I calculated in a bad way. Okay. All right. No. All right. So maybe I didn't think about it. But I thought of it, and the first thing that came to my head: Sam Sawyer traveled with me to. Uh, we traveled on different planes to Rome. He waited at the airport for my plane to arrive, even though it was late. Then he went to the airport early when we were leaving, even though he's super efficient about travel and I'm super worried. So I probably even got there hours earlier than he even would have gotten there. And he was super kind about it all. And he was an excellent um, colleague and friend during our whole trip and just super kind and patient with all of my worries and a really fun person to share it with. And I think anyone who does anything airport related for anyone else is completely selfless. That's such right. A good like point. no yeah. one wants to go to the airport. No one wants to wait in the airport. And um I think that immediately qualifies him for sainthood. Yeah. And I think this is just the boost he needs as he starts on as America's next Yeah, talk about team. calculated. <laughs> the boss's That's first week was yesterday from when people are listening to this. And it's he's he's already been canonized. It's, I mean, right. He's my boss. Like I understand the way this looks, but I'm just telling you, he's a very patient airport travel companion. And I think for that, he deserves sainthood. All right. Uh, Again, uh, the article is behind the scenes, what it's like to interview Pope Francis. It is linked in our show notes. You can read that and the interview that we've been talking about uh, all week here at America at americamagazine.org. Carrie Weber, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Sooner or later, we can be calm strangers. Someday, somewhere, we can be. States of Faith is a brand for Catholics who love the rosary and are proud of where they live. Imagine your state outlined in the rosary with the crucifix laying over the capital. You can get States of Faith designs on sweatshirts, quarter zips, t-shirts, coffee mugs, or stickers. Rep your state and faith at statesoffaith.com. Use the code JESUITICAL15 for 15% off your order. Deepen your faith and learn about the rich heritage of the Catholic Church. At Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology, you can earn your master's degree or certificate, or simply take a graduate course. Or celebrate the Christmas season by signing up for their Advent Reflection Series, delivered every day by email. This year's theme is the Eucharist and Seton Hall's Campus, Daily Advent Meditations. Learn more at www.shu.edu slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for some housekeeping. And this week, it's a bit bittersweet. Um, This is the last week that Father Matt Malone will be the editor-in-chief of America. We're recording on Wednesday, November 30th, which is his last day. And tomorrow we start a new era under the leadership of Father Sam Sawyer. That's right. And want to take a moment just to say a huge thank you to Matt. Uh, as I was talking to Matt this week and point out, he's the only boss I've ever had. So uh, that's one pretty cool. Um, but also, you know, this podcast certainly would not exist w- unless Matt had, you know, made the space for it. For people like 
you and I who are still early in our careers to be creative and take risks. And if you listen to those first episodes, they're not the best, but that, you know, we were still encouraged and pushed to maybe you still think the, the episodes that come out today are not the best. But at any rate, uh, Matt was always encouraging. He was always there to say, yes, uh, this is where young Catholics are. Let's let's go. Let's go get them. Yeah, now I started at America nine years ago, one year into Matt's tenure, and and the place is unrecognizable. Not he didn't only give us the space to grow as as editors and journalists and podcasters. Like we're in a beautiful space. When I started, we were in a very old building where uh, making a podcast of this quality would have been difficult. And here we are in the state of the art studio that his vision for the transformation of America made possible. Um, and so yeah, just really really grateful for all, all Matt has done over the past 10 years. And good yeah. luck. Good luck, Matt. Yeah, thank you. I hope you keep listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you and good luck. You can take a break, but come back. <laughs> and if you want a more extended formal goodbye to Father Matt Malone, you can listen to the Gloria Purpose podcast this week. Uh, Gloria talks to Matt about their their shared experience interviewing Pope Francis, but also about uh, his his tenure at America Magazine. So you can check that out. And we hope you listen to another new podcast from America Media. It's season two of Hark, the stories behind our favorite Christmas carols. And episode one is about Carol of the Bells. <laughs> no, this is, uh, I, it's, I love this podcast. I love that we have some like good quality Christmas content. It really, it g- goes deep, tells the stories. Uh, some of these are like super fascinating. I didn't know this. It was originally derived from a Ukrainian folk song, so it takes on some extra meaning this year. And Hark is going deep and telling the stories behind our favorite Christmas songs. They're doing four more, uh, but we're not going to tell you here. They're not going to tell you here. So you got to subscribe and stay tuned, but uh, stick around after the credits in this episode and you'll get a little preview and then jump over to the Hark feed and subscribe there. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, What are you, where are you finding him, Zach? Well, I... Was thinking about Advent coming up and um, just kind of people always say Advent's a season of waiting. And that's one of those pieces of advice that gets, or I don't know, those adages that gets thrown around, thrown around a lot that I like to nod my head and smile to, but I don't really, <laughs> it's not really that useful. Um, no one likes waiting. <laughs> no, no one likes waiting. I don't really know what I'm waiting for. Um, obviously, like Jesus is coming and, you know, but Jesus is also already here. And so it's one of these like mental gymnastics that we're asked to do is, is Catholics. Um, and I'll say like I was able to get somewhere with it this year because um, prayer's been good, but I, I haven't necessarily felt like close to the like person of Jesus in, in at least a little bit. And so I'm not trying to beat myself up over that and just be like, oh, okay, well, I'll just like pretend like this is a, a good a good period of time. And uh, I was writing about this in a scripture reflection for America, and I kind of identified uh, three three types of waiting is what I'll what I'll say. Um, the first is like. Uh, putting off right you're like uh this is wait till your father gets home um you, you're you're in fear of punishment something yeah. bad dread. is going to happen <laughs> dread um also known as being irish um just you know something bad is going to happen and brace uh, yourself brace yourself right so that's one type of waiting um another and this took on some importance for me uh, I, I describe it as like a exciting anticipation, right? So um, my wife, Amanda, was just away on a long business trip, and I was very excited to see her when she got back. And so, you know, I got the house in order. I was, I got a, a meal prepared for her that she could walk into and, you know, feel at home about. And I was like, okay, that's another type of waiting, something that you are both excited for, but making preparations for. Um, and the third is a sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, like uh, if you've ever been a procrastinator, Maybe in college you like were assigned a final and you had to write like 5,000 words in 12 hours overnight because you just put off thinking about it and assumed it'll just get done. That's future Zach's problem. <laughs> Hypothetically, this is something you've done. And so it sneaks up on you. Oh, yeah. Right? That definitely stopped in college. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and so I was asking myself, okay, well, like where where is my relationship with God this advent, right? And uh, it, I, truthful answer was I didn't know, right? Because I hadn't given it any thought. Um, but I'm hoping to direct myself towards that towards that second way, right? Where I'm actually like making preparations. I'm cleaning my interior house. I'm, I'm preparing a meal of sorts, um, which is not always easy to do because this also happens at a time when we're asked to like ramp up everything, right? End of the year, things get busy at work. People are Christmas shopping. You're making travel arrangements. And so all of that has to happen. But 
this advent, I'm trying to just do a little bit of interior work to make myself ready for Jesus to get here. Yeah, I really love that, like that metaphor of cleaning the house and making a meal. What what does that mean in, in the weeks before Christmas when we're welcoming welcoming the baby Jesus? Um, I haven't I didn't get to write about it or think about it, so I'm I'm still gonna, you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Yeah, <laughs> I, it can be it can be little things, right? Um, yeah. I, whatever is working for you and in your prayer life, maybe it's trying something new, um, going back to something that used to work, um, and just maybe spending some time in quiet, I think this, this Advent will do us all a bit of good. For sure. All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. And now stick around for an excerpt from Hark. I feel like this is the quintessential Christmas song. Home Alone is the one that I think of. And the homeless men who end up like helping him out is there in an empty church. And I'm pretty sure that's when that song is playing. You hear it with voices, you hear it with instruments. There's that really like amped up version from Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Brings in the violins and the and the electric guitars and all that. We sang this with my high school acapella group and I just remember those bell sounds. Ding dong, ding dong. Welcome back to Hark. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and caroling enthusiast, who despite having no real musical ear or training, is delighted to bring Hark into its second season. Hark is a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. Over the four weeks of Advent, we unwrap one song at a time. We look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the cultural and religious messages baked into their lyrics. If you're new to Hark, welcome. We are so happy to have you. You might consider checking out the five episodes we made last year, including our first, The History of Christmas Carols, which is an excellent primer for what's to come. That said, Hark is what we call evergreen. It's unencumbered by time or trends and 24-hour news cycles. It's where we step into the classics and relish the eternally relevant. And this episode is no exception. We're looking at a Christmas carol that was a hit from the very beginning. One that in the Advent spirit of anticipation both haunts and excites us. All of these elements converging to create this really, really powerful expression of wonderment and mystery and anticipation. The song was born in a period of devastating political warfare and cultural genocide, not unlike what we are witnessing today. And it's a bloody period. They're going after intellectuals. They're going after priests, kind of the people that uphold Ukrainian culture and language. We're talking, of course, about Carol of the Bells. The Ukrainian version of Shchedrik has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas or bells. That's right. Before it was Carol of the Bells, this iconic four-note melody was Shedrik, a Ukrainian folk song. The Ukrainian lyrics talk about a swallow, a bird that comes to a household and summons the master of the house out and tells him to look at his livestock, to look at the coming spring season, to look at his beautiful, dark brown, eyebrowed wife. This is Lydia Tomkyo, a journalist based in New York City. I'm second-generation American. Grew up in a Ukrainian household in California. Grew up speaking Ukrainian. Grew up playing the 65-string traditional bandura Ukrainian instrument. The bandura is like a lyre, and it's been played in wandering Ukrainian minstrel groups for centuries. And in Lydia's home, her family would play shedrik on the bandura. It wasn't until high school 
but she realized how the wider American culture had snatched her cherished Christmas carol from its Ukrainian roots. A friend of mine in high school was in choir, and he was saying, oh, you know, here's our list of what we're singing this Christmas season. And on the notes for Carol of the Bells, below the title, it said, you know, based on the Ukrainian melody. And he's like, wait, you're a Ukrainian? Like, what's the backstory here? Well, as we've established, Shedrick did not have a very Christmassy start. And that's because it belonged to a canon of Ukrainian folk music that predated Christian times. So you'd have these songs that people would sing welcoming the spring season, and they'd cover a lot of different topics, nature, birds, bears, I mean, there are hundreds of them. Shedrik translates to the generous one, or simply bountiful, and was translated to English as the little swallow. The song comes from a genre of Ukrainian folk music known as Shedrivka. These are songs written in celebration of a new year, an anticipation of springtime. So how did the song about the little swallow become a worldwide ding-dong sensation? With the help of one Ukrainian composer. And let me make sure I'm saying his name right. Uh, Leontovich? Leontovich. Leontovich. <laughs> Ukrainian is difficult, as we've seen <laughs> the last, you know, since February with a lot of people <laughs> pronouncing city names. After much practice, I can tell you that the composer was Mikola Leontovich. He was also a choral conductor and a teacher. But Lydia will tell you, he almost didn't become any of those things. He was actually born into a family of priests in 1877, you know, a religious family in the Podilia region, um, which is southwestern Ukraine. And he actually went and completed his studies at a rather well-known theological seminary in Ukraine. But instead of entering the priesthood, he pursued a career in music. He had a fascinating musical career. He'd go to Kiev. He was in Moscow, St. Petersburg. And he actually did write quite a bit of religious music, including notably the music for the first Ukrainian language liturgy that's then conducted in 1919. So Leontovich spends several years arranging music. And one of the new songs he arranges is Shedrik. From a lot of the scholars I talked to in Ukraine, they think it's likely he started from a version he probably heard in his childhood in the village in Podilia. And once he arranges it, he sends it to um, a man named Alexander Koshitz, who's a choir conductor in Cave. He sends him this in August of 1916. Several months later, Koshitz's choir in Cave performs it, and that's where the journey onto the world stage really starts. Leontovich is composing about 100 years ago, which, like today, is a tumultuous and bloody period in Ukrainian history. The modern Ukraine that we see on TV now all the time on maps, those borders, that emerges in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I think it's really important to underscore here, and you know, Ukrainians, the identity existed well before 1991. We have the Romanov dynasty that falls in 1917. And then there's this brief moment in Ukrainian history where a Ukrainian state, the Ukrainian People's Republic, is established, declared in 1918, sort of the first modern version of a Ukrainian state. And the man who's running the state, Simon Petlura, he believes very firmly that they need support of European allies that they want people to recognize Ukraine. And he saw the value of promoting Ukrainian culture and identity. And he thinks a great way to do this is to find a choir, a conductor, and send people on tour. And so that's what ends up happening. And this is how Shedrick first hits the international stage, as a tool for cultural diplomacy and a means of winning support from other political powers to recognize the sovereignty of Ukraine. And then by 1921, the short-lived Ukrainian People's Republic has fallen. And this interwar period, 1918 to 1939, Harvard historian Sidhi Plokhi, he describes it very well as saying the Ukrainians emerge as the largest nation in Europe with an unresolved national question. The territory really gets divided at this point by four European states, so Bolshevik Russia takes a huge portion of it, Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. What else, you know, starts happening in Ukraine, there's this very bloody period known as the Red Terror from 1918 to 1922. 
in which the Cheka, the Bolshevik police, that's, you know, the precursor to the modern KGB, they kill thousands of people in their effort to consolidate Bolshevik rule. And it's not just military or political forces that they're going after. The Cheka hunts down anyone who is seen to be upholding Ukrainian culture, including intellectuals, artists, priests, even music composers. In January 1921, Leontovich goes to his home village, where he's staying with his father. One evening, there's a knock at the door. It's a man asking for shelter. The family welcomes him in and provides lodging for the night. That evening, the man shoots and kills Mikola Leontovich. The traveler was a secret Soviet officer, and Mikola was targeted as an enemy of the state. And so Leontovich tragically dies, very young still in his life, and doesn't ever get to see what happens with his most famous work and how it really becomes a global phenomenon. Has anyone noted the irony of Leontovich being murdered during Christmas time, which is, if we look at the nativity story itself, is a time of welcoming strangers, of Mary and Joseph seeking shelter for the birth of Jesus and being turned away. And here you have this story of his family, at least, welcoming a stranger, you know, to offer hospitality for the night and then being tragically murdered. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also very common in Ukrainian tradition. People are very hospitable, welcoming, bringing people into their homes. They're going to feed you way too much, right? That's sort of part of the culture. And this happens a few weeks after Ukrainian Christmas, which was celebrated in, in January. Music is powerful, and those who wield its verses remain lions of culture and identity today. Just a few months ago, in late September, early October, Russian forces dealt another comply-or-die policy to one of Ukraine's top composers. Ukrainian conductor Yuri Kurpatenko was shot and killed in his home by Russian forces for refusing to participate in a concert that they planned in Kherson. Kurpatenko was also a young but accomplished composer at only 46 years of age. He lived and worked in Kherson, a port city in Ukraine that fell early to Russian forces in March 2022. Nearly half the inhabitants fled the city, but Kerpetenko stayed and openly protested the occupation. The final straw appears to have been when Russian forces planned a concert to showcase what they called improvement of peaceful life in the city. Kerpetenko refused to perform propaganda. In early October, he was shot in his own home. Rewinding a hundred years. Despite efforts to silence Ukrainian culture, Leontovich's music played on with the Ukrainian Republic Capella, the national choir of the newly independent Ukrainian People's Republic. They set off on a world tour, so they went across 10 countries in Europe for three years, then to North America, where they played 115 U.S. cities. There are great archival records I found of small universities in the American Midwest being really thankful that the choir came and performed for them. But perhaps the most legendary of those tour dates was the first stop on the Capella's North American tour, Carnegie Hall in New York City on October 5th, 1922. So legends have long swirled around what may or may not have happened that night at Carnegie Hall. Um, But we do know they performed it sort of at the first half of their program, and it was the hit of the tour. We know this from Oleksandr Kostic's memoirs. We know this from newspaper reviews. People loved this. They wanted encores. They threw flowers on the stage. And whether or not there was a man in the audience that night at Carnegie Hall, we'll never probably be certain. But a gentleman named Peter Woloski, who himself is a really, you know, renowned, famous American choral director, he ends up going to write the famous American lyrics we all know today about sweet silver bells, ding dong, ding dong. Do you have any idea why Woloski might have heard bells? 
So I managed to track down Peter Wolowski's niece when I was starting to report this. She's sadly since passed away, but I reached her in 2017 by phone in Hawaii. And she told me growing up in their sort of corner of New Jersey with, you know, Eastern European heritage, the church bells would ring at midnight for Christmas. Peter Wilhowski was a classically trained choral director and a music administrator in New York City public schools. He was also born into an immigrant family. His family is from what's sort of northeastern Slovakia today, likely, you know, spoke Rusin, which is kind of another language also found in Ukraine. Now, here's the historic moment when Shedrik becomes Carol of the Bells. He needed to fill out a high school choir program. He needed a new piece. <laughs> and he, he knew his students wouldn't sing in Ukrainian, so he goes ahead and composes the English text, Hark How the Bells, Sweet Silver Bells. And it's broadcast, because he actually does a lot of work also for NBC Radio. And schools start writing to him wanting copies. So this happens in 1936. And this is the crazy part of all of this another near miss in history. His friends urge him to submit it to a publisher, and the first publisher rejects it. So he's a little downtrodden, I think, by this. And then a couple weeks later, a salesman from Carl Fisher Music walks into his office, is looking to purchase something, and asks him, you know, do you have anything? And he's kind of like, well, I have this thing. It was just rejected. Take a look. It is purchased. It's one of the best-selling pieces of Christmas music. Well, the rest is history. After the break, we'll hear what makes Carol of the Bells such an irresistible Christmas classic. Stay with us. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. <laughs> 